Chapter fourteen of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen A House Divided. I think we need two national associations for women's suffrage so that those who do not oppose the Fifteenth Amendment nor take the tone of the revolution, may yet have an organization with which they can work in harmony. So wrote Lucy Stone to many of her friends during the summer of 1869, and some of these letters fell into Susan's hands. The radical abolitionists and the Republicans could never have worked together, but in separate organizations both did good service. Lucy further explained. There are just as distinctly two parties to the woman movement. Each organization will attract those who naturally belong to it, and there will be harmonious work. When the ground had been prepared by these letters, Lucy asked old friends and new to sign a call to a woman's suffrage convention to be held in Cleveland, Ohio, in November 1869, to unite those who cannot use the methods which Mrs. Stanton and Susan use. Those feeling as she did eagerly signed the call, while others who knew little about the controversy in the East added their names because they were glad to take part in a convention sponsored by such prominent men and women as Julia Ward Howe, George William Curtis, Henry Ward Beecher, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and William Lloyd Garrison. Still others, who did not understand the insurmountable differences in temperament and policy between the two groups, hoped that a new truly national organization would unite the two factions. Even Mary Livermore, who had been active in the formation of the National Women's Suffrage Association, was by this time responding to overtures from the Boston group, writing William Lloyd Garrison, I have been repelled by some of the idiosyncrasies of our New York friends, as have others. Their opposition to the Fifteenth Amendment, the buffoonery of George F. Train, the loose utterances of the revolution on the marriage and dress questions, and what is equally potent hindrance to the cause, the fearful squandering of money at the New York headquarters, all this has tended to keep me on my own feet, apart from those to whom I was at first attracted. I am glad at the prospect of an association that will be truly national, and which promises so much of success and character. Neither Susan nor Mrs. Stanton received a notice of the Cleveland Convention, but Susan, scanning a copy of the call sent her by a solicitous friend, was deeply disturbed when she saw the signatures of Lydia Mott, Amelia Bloomer, Myra Bradwell, Garrett Smith, and other good friends. The New York world, at once suspecting a feud, asked, Where are those well-known American names? Susan B. Anthony, Parker Pillsbury, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. It is clear that there is a division in the ranks of the strong-minded, 
and that an effort is being made to ostracize the revolution which has so long upheld the cause of suffrage through evil report and good the rochester democrat loyal to susan put this question can it be possible that a national woman's suffrage convention is called without susan's knowledge or consent a national woman's suffrage association without speeches from susan b anthony and mrs stanton will be a new order of things the idea seems absurd to susan it also seemed both absurd and unrealistic for she remembered how almost single-handed she had held together and built up the woman's suffrage movement during the years when her colleagues had been busy with family duties she was appalled at the prospect of a division in the ranks at this time when she believed victory possible through the action of a strong united front confident that many who signed the call were ignorant of or blind to the animus behind it she did her best to bring the facts before them she put the blame for the rift entirely upon lucy stone believing that without lucy's continual stirring up past differences in policy would soon have been forgotten the antagonism between the two burned fiercely at this time susan was determined to fight to the last ditch for control of the movement convinced that her policies and mrs stanton's were forward-looking unafraid and always put woman first susan now also had to face the humiliating possibility that she might be forced to give up the revolution not only was the operating deficit piling up alarmingly but there were persistent rumors of a competitor another woman's suffrage paper to be edited by lucy stone and julia ward howe susan had assumed full financial responsibility for the revolution because mrs stanton and parker pillsbury both with families to consider felt unable to share this burden Mrs. Stanton had always contributed her services, and Parker Pillsbury had been sadly underpaid, while Susan had drawn out for her salary only the most meager sums for bare living expenses. With a maximum of 3,000 subscribers, the paper could not hope to pay its way, even though she had secured a remarkably loyal group of advertisers reluctantly she raised the subscription price from two dollars to three dollars a year her friends and family were generous with gifts and loans but these only met the pressing needs of the moment and in no way solved the overall financial problem of the paper appealing once again to her wealthy and generous quaker cousin anson latham she wrote him in desperation my paper must not shall not go down i am sure you believe in me in my honesty of purpose and also in the grand work which the revolution seeks to do and therefore you will not allow me to ask you in vain to come to the rescue yesterday's mail brought forty-three subscribers from illinois and twenty from california we only need time to win financial success. I know you will save me from giving the world a chance to say 
there is a woman's rights failure. Even the best of women can't manage business. If only I could die and thereby fail honorably, I would say amen. But to live and fail, it would be too terrible to bear. He came to her aid, as he always had in the past. Susan's sister Mary not only lent her all her savings, but spent her summer vacation in New York in 1869, working in the Revolution office, while Susan, busy with women's suffrage conventions in Newport, Saratoga, Chicago, and Ohio, was building up goodwill and subscriptions for her paper. Concerned for her welfare, Mary repeatedly but unsuccessfully urged her to give up. Daniel added his entreaties to Mary's, begging Susan not to go further into debt, but to form a stock company if she were determined to continue her paper. She considered his advice very seriously, for he was a practical businessman and yet appreciated what she was trying to do. For a time, the formation of a stock company seemed possible, for the project appealed to three women of means, Paulina Wright Davis, Isabella Beecher Hooker, and Laura Curtis Bullard, but it never materialized. With the financial problem of the revolution still unsolved, Susan decided to make her appearance at Lucy Stone's convention in Cleveland, Ohio, on November 24, 1869. Not only did she want to see with her own eyes and hear with her own ears all that went on, but she was determined to walk the second mile with Lucy and her supporters, or even to turn the other cheek, if need be, for the sake of her beloved cause. Seeing her in the audience, Judge Bradwell of Chicago moved that she be invited to sit on the platform but Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was presiding, replied that he thought this unnecessary, as a special invitation had already been extended to all desiring to identify themselves with the movement. Judge Bradwell would not be put off. His motion was carried, and as Susan walked up to the platform to join the other notables, she was greeted with hearty applause. Sitting there among her critics, she wondered what she could possibly say to persuade them to forget their differences for the sake of the cause. After listening to Lucy Stone plead for renewed work for women's suffrage and for petitions for a Sixteenth Amendment, she spontaneously rose to her feet and asked permission to speak. I hope, she began, that the work of this association, if it be organized, will be to go in strong array up to the Capitol at Washington to demand a 16th Amendment to the Constitution. The question of the admission of women to the ballot would not then be left to the mass of voters in every state, but would be submitted by Congress to the several legislatures of the states for ratification, and be decided by the most intelligent portion of the people. If the question is left to the vote of the rank and file, it will be put off for years. So help me heaven, she continued with emotion, I care not 
what may come out of this convention, so that this great cause shall go forward to its consummation. And though this convention by its action shall nullify the national association of which I am a member, and though it shall tread its heel upon the revolution, to carry on which I have struggled as never mortal woman or mortal man struggled for any cause, still, if you will do the work in Washington, so that this amendment will be proposed, and will go with me to the several legislatures and compel them to adopt it, I will thank God for this convention as long as I have the breath of life. Loud and continuous applause greeted these earnest words. However, instead of pledging themselves to work for a Sixteenth Amendment, the newly formed American Women's Suffrage Association, blind to the exceptional opportunity at this time for congressional action on women's suffrage, decided to concentrate on work in the states where suffrage bills were pending. Instead of electing an outstanding woman as president, they chose Henry Ward Beecher, boasting that this was proof of their genuine belief in equal rights. Lucy Stone headed the executive committee. Divisions soon began developing among the suffragists in the field. Many whose one thought previously had been the cause now spent time weighing the differences between the two organizations and between personalities, and antagonisms increased. Hardest of all for Susan to bear was the definite announcement of a rival paper, the Woman's Journal, to be issued in Boston in January 1870 under the editorship of Lucy Stone, Mary A. Livermore, and Julia Ward Howe, with Henry Blackwell as business manager. Mary Livermore, who previously had planned to merge her paper, The Agitator, with The Revolution, now merged it with the Women's Journal. Financed by wealthy stockholders, all influential Republicans, the journal, Susan knew, would be spared the financial struggles of the Revolution, but would be obliged to conform to Republican policy in its support of women's rights. Had not the Women's Journal been such an obvious affront to the heroic efforts of the Revolution, and a threat to its very existence, she could have rejoiced with Lucy over one more paper carrying the message of woman's suffrage. More determined than ever to continue the revolution, Susan redoubled her efforts, announcing an imposing list of contributors for 1870, including the British feminist Lydia Becker, and as a special attraction, a serial by Alice Carey. Through the efforts of Mrs. Hooker, Harriet Beecher Stowe was persuaded to consider serving as contributing editor, provided the paper's name was changed to the True Republic, or to some other name satisfactory to her. Having struggled against the odds for so long, Susan had no intention of being stifled now by Mrs. Stowe's more conservative views nor would she give her crusading sheet an innocuous name. However, the decision was taken out of her hands by the revolution's coverage of the sensational McFarland-Richardson murder case, 
which so shocked both Mrs. Hooker and Mrs. Stowe, that they gave up all thought of being associated in a publishing venture with Susan or Mrs. Stanton. The whole country was stirred in December 1869 by the fatal shooting in the Tribune office of the well-known journalist Albert D. Richardson by Daniel McFarland, to whose divorced wife Richardson had been attentive. When, just before his death, Richardson was married to the divorced Mrs. McFarland by Henry Ward Beecher, with Horace Greeley as a witness, the press was agog. So strong was the feeling against a divorced woman that Henry Ward Beecher was severely condemned for officiating at the marriage, and Mrs. Richardson was played up in the press and in court as the villain although her divorce had been granted because of the brutality and instability of MacFarland. Indignant at the sophistry of the press and the general acceptance of a double standard of morals, the revolution not only spoke out fearlessly in defense of Mrs. Richardson, but in an editorial by Mrs. Stanton frankly analyzed the tragic human relations so obvious in the case. With Susan's full approval, Mrs. Stanton wrote, I rejoice over every slave that escapes from a discordant marriage. With the education and elevation of women, we shall have a mighty sundering of the unholy ties that hold men and women together who loathe and despise each other. When the court acquitted MacFarland, giving him the custody of his twelve-year-old son, Susan called a protest meeting which attracted an audience of two thousand. Such words and such activities disturbed many who sympathized with Mrs. Richardson, but saw no reason for flaunting exultant approval of divorce in a woman's suffrage paper, and they turned to the woman's journal as more to their taste. Susan, however, reading the first number of the woman's journal, found its editorials lacking fire. She rebelled at Julia Ward Howe's counsel to lay down all partisan warfare and organize a peaceful grand army of the Republic of Women, not as against men, but as against all that is pernicious to men and women. Susan's fight had never been against men, but against man-made laws that held women in bondage. There had always been men willing to help her. Experience had taught her that the struggle for women's rights was no peaceful academic debate, but real warfare which demanded political strategy, self-sacrifice, and unremitting labor. She was prouder than ever of her revolution and its liberal, hard-hitting policy. Convinced that the National Woman's Suffrage Association must publicize its existence and its value, Susan began the year 1870 with a convention in Washington which even Senator Sumner praised as exceeding in interest anything he had ever witnessed there its striking demonstration of the vitality and intelligence of the national association was the best answer she could possibly have given to the accusations and criticism aimed at her and her organization jesse benton fremont watching the delegates enter the dining-room of the arlington hotel
called Susan over to her table, and said with a twinkle in her eyes, Now tell me, Miss Anthony, have you hunted the country over, and picked out and brought to Washington a score of the most beautiful women you could find? They were a fine-looking and intelligent lot. Paulina Wright Davis, Isabella Beecher Hooker, Josephine Griffin of the Freedmen's Bureau, Charlotte Wilbur, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Martha C. Wright, and Olympia Brown, Phoebe Cousins and Virginia Minor from Missouri, Madame Anneke from Wisconsin, and best of all to Susan, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Their presence, their friendship, and allegiance were a source of great pride and joy. Elizabeth Stanton had come from St. Louis, interrupting her successful lecture tour when she much preferred to stay away from all conventions. She had written Susan, Of course I stand by you to the end. I would not see you crushed by rivals, even if to prevent it required my being cut into inch bits. No power in heaven, hell, or earth can separate us, for our hearts are eternally wedded together. Also at this convention, to show his support of Susan and her program, was her faithful friend of many years, the Reverend Samuel J. May of Syracuse. Clara Barton, ill and unable to attend, sent a letter to be read, an appeal to her soldier friends for women's suffrage. Not only did the large and enthusiastic audiences show a growing interest in votes for women, but two great victories for women in 1869, one in Great Britain and the other in the United States, brought to the convention a feeling of confidence. Women taxpayers had been granted the right to vote in municipal elections in England, Scotland, and Wales, through the efforts of Jacob Bright. In the territory of Wyoming, during the first session of its legislature, women had been granted the right to vote, to hold office, and serve on juries, and married women had been given the right to their separate property and their earnings. This progressive action by men of the West turned Susan's thoughts hopefully to the Western territories, and early in 1870, when the territory of Utah enfranchised its women, she had further cause for rejoicing. To celebrate these victories, for which her twenty years' work for women had blazed the trail, some of her friends held a reception for her in New York, at the Women's Bureau on her fiftieth birthday. She was amazed at the friendly attention her birthday received in the press. Susan's half-century, read a headline in the Herald. The world called her the Moses of her sex. A brave old maid, commented the son. But it was to the Tribune that she turned with special interest, always hoping for a word of approval from Horace Greeley, and finding at last this faint ray of praise. Careful readers of the Tribune have probably succeeded in discovering that we have not always been able to applaud the course of Susan B. Anthony. Indeed, we have often felt, and sometimes said, that her methods were as unwise as we thought her aims undesirable. 
but through these years of disputation and struggling miss anthony has thoroughly impressed friends and enemies alike with the sincerity and earnestness of her purpose to anna e dickinson far away lecturing susan confided oh anna i am so glad of it all because it will teach the young girls that to be true to principle to live an idea though an unpopular one that to live single without any man's name may be honorable a few of susan's younger colleagues still insisted that a merger of the national and american women's suffrage associations might be possible again theodore tilton undertook the task of mediation and lucretia mott who had retired from active participation in the women's rights movement tried to help work out a reconciliation susan was skeptical but gave them her blessing representatives of the american association however again made it plain that they were unwilling to work with susan and mrs stanton by this time the revolution had become an overwhelming financial burden for some months mrs stanton had been urging susan to give it up and turn to the lecture field as she had done to spread the message of women's rights susan hesitated unwilling to give up the revolution and not yet confident that she could hold the attention of an audience for a whole evening however she found herself a great success when pushed into several lyceum lecture engagements in pennsylvania by mrs stanton's sudden illness miss anthony evidently lectures not for the purpose of receiving applause commented the pittsburgh commercial but for the purpose of making people understand and be convinced she takes her place on the stage in a plain and unassuming manner and speaks extemporaneously and fluently too reminding one of an old campaign speaker who is accustomed to talk simply for the purpose of converting his audience to his political theories she used plain english and plenty of it she clearly evinced a quality that many politicians lack sincerity for each of these lectures on work wages and the ballot she received a fee of seventy-five dollars and was able as well to get new subscribers for the revolution she now saw the possibilities for herself and the cause in a lyceum tour and when the lyceum bureau pleased with her reception in pennsylvania wanted to book her for lectures in the west she accepted calling parker pillsbury back to the revolution to take charge all through illinois she drew large audiences and her fees increased to ninety five dollars one hundred and twenty five dollars and one hundred and fifty dollars in two months she was able to pay one thousand three hundred dollars of the revolution's debt when she returned to new york she realized that she could not continue to carry the revolution alone in spite of increased subscriptions its ten thousand dollar debt weighed heavily upon her parker pillsbury's help could only be temporary mrs stanton's strenuous lecture tour left her little time to give to the paper and susan's own friends and family were unable to finance it further 
fortunately, the idea of editing a paper appealed strongly to the wealthy Laura Curtis Bullard, who had the promise of editorial help from Theodore Tilton. Susan now turned the paper over to them completely, receiving nothing in return but shares of stock, while she assumed the entire indebtedness. Giving up the control of her beloved paper was one of the most humiliating experiences and one of the deepest sorrows she ever faced. The revolution had become to her the symbol of her crusade for women. Overwhelmed by a sense of failure, she confided to her diary on the date of the transfer, it was like signing my own death warrant. And to a friend she wrote, I feel a great calm sadness, like that of a mother, binding out a dear child that she could not support. She made a valiant announcement of the transfer in the revolution of May 26, 1870, expressing her delight that the paper had at last found financial backing and a new enthusiastic editor. In view of the active demand for conventions, lectures, and discussions on women's suffrage, she added, I have concluded that, so far as my own personal efforts are concerned, I can be more useful on the platform than in a newspaper. So, on the 1st of June next, I shall cease to be the sole proprietor of the revolution, and shall be free to attend public meetings wherever so plain and matter-of-fact an old worker as I am can secure a hearing." Financial backing, however, did not put the revolution on its feet, although its forthright editorials and articles were replaced by spicy and brilliant observations on pleasant topics which offended no one. Before the year was up, Mrs. Bullard was making overtures to Susan to take the paper back. Susan wanted desperately to keep the old ship revolution's colors flying, and to bring back Mrs. Stanton's stinging editorials. She also feared that Mrs. Bullard, on Theodore Tilton's advice, might turn the paper over to the Boston group to be consolidated with the woman's journal. As no funds were available, she had to turn her back on her beloved paper and hope for the best. I suppose there is a wise providence in my being stripped of power to go forward, she wrote at this time. At any rate, I mean to try and make good come out of it. For one more year, the revolution struggled on under the editorship of Mrs. Bullard and Theodore Tilton, and then was taken over by the Christian Inquirer. The $10,000 debt, incurred under Susan's management, she regarded as her responsibility, although her brother Daniel and many of her friends urged bankruptcy proceedings. "'My pride for women, to say nothing of my conscience,' she insisted, says no. End of chapter 14